So here we are in the book of Timothy. We finished up our teaching in Titus. We're moving to a similar book. Here the book of 1 Timothy. Lord willing, I want to look at all the pastoral epistles. That would be 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. We've already completed Titus. Now we're on to 1 Timothy, and that's where we will be studying this morning. The Apostle Paul, he's writing a letter or an epistle. If you hear me say that word epistle, it means letter to Timothy. Timothy is a young man who is at the church in Ephesus. Timothy is a true friend of the Apostle Paul. And much like Titus, he's been placed there by the Apostle Paul. And most believe that this epistle was written between 62 and 64 A.D. And it looks like Timothy might be growing weary of the task at hand and that that task that's been entrusted to him by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is writing to him to encourage him to stay the course, to remain there in Ephesus. Timothy is facing opposition from ungodly men. There are those in Ephesus who teach falsely. And Paul knows that if Timothy was to leave, the consequences would be tragic. So Paul writes to establish Timothy, to establish his authority, so that he can silence these men who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. Much like the situation in Crete, which was there with Timothy, this is a similar situation. But Timothy's is far worse. The false teaching in Ephesus is greater. It has a greater hold on the congregation. A quick word about Ephesus, it was one of the largest and most impressive cities in the ancient world. It was literally a central hub where this was the central of the political world in Asia Minor, the religious world, the commercial center. You might have heard of the city before from the book of Ephesians. And it is that this church is where Timothy is located. So what will we see in our study of 1 Timothy? we will see Paul's strong warnings against false teaching. You might be saying at this point in time, after going through the Gospel of John and Titus, that I talk a lot about false teaching. Well, it's not me. I'm just the messenger. God is the one that talks about false teaching over and over again. And He has warned us through His Word that there are many that would creep into the church and teach destructive heresies. Jesus warned of them, called them wolves, and that we would know them by their fruit. The Apostle Paul warns them in almost every single letter that he wrote. Peter and Jude also, in their letters, spoke of those who would bring that dangerous teaching in the church. The enemy has been corrupting God's word since the very beginning, saying to Eve, did God really say, twisting the very words of God in no Different are these men that serve their master, Satan. They twist what God has said. But God has been gracious to us to over and over again throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, to warn us of those who would teach contrary to what is sound doctrine. The book of 1 Timothy is no different. We're going to be talking about that in the, in the coming weeks. The main, one of the main points of this book is how we are to conduct ourselves as believers in corporate worship. When we, when we come together as believers, how should the church conduct themselves? Paul will give clear instructions on how we are to do just that. Who is to teach? Who 
should teach, what their qualifications are. We'll also see clear instruction given to Timothy on how he is to lead a body of believers. And this would be applicable to any man who would desire to lead in a local church. This morning we're going to be focusing on verses 1 and 2. And this greeting here of the Apostle Paul will be our introduction into the book of Timothy. Some might question, why do we listen to the Apostle Paul so much? Why do Christians listen to the Apostle Paul so much? He's not Jesus after all. Shouldn't we just be focused on those red letters? Aren't those the most important? Some might ask. And listen, the words of Christ, they are very important. But all of Scripture is God-breathed. That is, that it is the inspired Word of God. And that is the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, inspired men to put these words on the pages. And the Apostle Paul is one of those men that has been inspired by God Himself to write what he wrote. And so we will see Paul's authority. It comes from God Himself. We'll see that the words of Paul in Scripture, that we know that while Paul is, Paul is the one writing them, these words are inspired, and they're just as important as those red letters of Jesus. They are equally the Word of God because Paul is speaking on behalf of God. And he is inspired by God. With that, let's look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. This is an interesting greeting. Paul knows Timothy well. These men are very close. They are close friends. Timothy knows that Paul is an apostle. He knows that he speaks with authority. He respects his authority. Why is it that Paul would start a letter out this way to a friend? Well, it's to establish Timothy. It's to give bite to his words. This letter is not just to be read by Timothy, but for the whole church. And anyone who would question Timothy, question his authority, like where are you getting these things? I'm getting them from the Apostle Paul. It is by his authority that I teach. So this is why Paul opens his letter this way. Paul wants the members in Ephesus to listen to Timothy. Timothy will have to silence those who teach falsely. He'll have to discipline members. He'll have to even excommunicate those men that are rebellious and will not teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And the church, while they see this happen, they need to know that this man is acting in accordance to the Word of God, in accordance to the Apostle that is from Christ. Paul's authority to which he writes is from Christ. He has no authority in himself. It has been given to him by Jesus Christ. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that word apostle means messenger or sent one. Now we're all messengers of Christ. We're all ambassadors of Christ, but it's different than you and me. We are messengers as we carry the good news of Jesus Christ. We are those that are, that are about the great commission, taking the gospel to the nations. We are his ambassadors. But there were those in the first century who were capital A apostles. They were specific men. And, and really from scripture we get three qualifications for what that capital A apostle, who they were. They had, A, they had seen the risen Christ. They had been specifically commissioned by God. 
They performed mighty signs and wonders that authenticated that they were those capital A apostles, that they were the messengers of God that he was building his church on with Christ as the chief cornerstone. This is what it meant to be a capital A apostle. These men were given specific commands by God to give his inspired revelation, to establish his church with those signs and inspired writings. And most of us all know who they are. They are the twelve, with the exception of Judas, but then with the later addition of Matthias. This is who the apostles are. And we all might say, well, they knew Christ. They saw the risen Lord. We can see how these men were uniquely gifted and qualified to be those capital A apostles. But how come the apostle Paul claims that same thing? Did he meet these qualifications? Well, Jesus appeared, the risen Christ appeared to the apostle Paul. And so we know from the road to Damascus, he saw Jesus. And Jesus gives him authority after that road to Damascus conversion. Let's look at that account. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. This is about Saul. This is prior to his conversion to Christ. It says this, but, Paul, or, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this is who the Apostle Paul once was. He was a man that was breathing out threats against the church, the one who was bringing Christians bound. He was bringing them to murder them. He opposed the way. Now there in verse 3 it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a great light shone from heaven around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice, a voice saying, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Notice that Saul was persecuting the church, but who does Christ say he's persecuting? Me. Christ is so, as the head of the church, when you persecute his believers, you are persecuting him. He said, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. And so we can see this man who is a proud man, a man so zealous for Pharisee to be a Pharisee that he was willing to persecute this sect, this Christian, this uprising. And here he falls to the ground, he's blinded, and he is brought to his knees by the Lord. Acts 9.7 says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was out without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to a street called Straight. And the house of Judas look for a man, for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he may regain his sight. And Ananias responds to him and says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on his name. Basically saying, are you sure this guy, Lord, 
But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of of my name. So this is who the Apostle Paul is. Once that murderous man, that Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a man zealous for Judaism, zeal so much so that he was willing to murder Christians who were a threat to it. He was confronted by the risen Christ. He was blinded. He was converted. And now as a Christian, he is commissioned by God himself to be a messenger of Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is who the Apostle Paul is, and this is where he gets his authority. The Lord says here that Paul is his chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. He is an apostle by the command of God, commissioned by God, given authority by God. That word there, commanded by God, literally means a royal commandment, a king's command. And Paul has been given orders from God himself to speak on behalf of God, to speak inspired words. He now writes to Timothy to give him that same authority, to establish his authority to the church there at Ephesus. Paul says something that is unusual for his letters. He says, God our Savior He normally always says, Christ our Savior. Normally throughout all of his letters, he says, Christ our Savior. But here in the pastoral epistles, we hear him say, God our Savior. I think think Paul uses it purposely. Some might think of Christ as the Savior and God as not. But Paul lets us know that our God is a saving God. While He is just, while He will not tolerate sin, while He is holy and He is pure, He is also gracious and He is also saving and He is also loving. We too often think of the Father as harsh and unloving, as somehow separate from the Son, and it is the Son who shows us love, that the Father will deal harshly with us. But that's not the case, because right here, the Apostle Paul says that God is our Savior. Remember John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. Who sent the Son? God sent the Son. The Father sent the Son. He is a gracious, saving God. And He has always been known as God our Savior. Oftentimes in our modern day, the God of the Old Testament is under attack constantly. Atheists want to call Him a monster, an unloving God. But that's far from the truth. What we see in the Old Testament is that God is our Savior. A few verses, Psalm 25, verse 5 says, Lead me into your truth and teach me, for you the God of my salvation. Psalm 27, 9 says, Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. Here are just a few verses, and there are many more instances throughout the Old Testament that says that God is a saving God. Another reason that Paul... So why is it that Paul uses this in his greeting? Maybe that had been completely lost in Ephesus. Maybe those false teachers, they've come in and they've told the people that God will deal harshly with you if you don't keep all these rules. 
Most likely bringing that Pharisaism right there into the church. Adding works to the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. Twisting what God has said. And anytime we twist God's word, we change His character. And so they lost the gracious God most likely. And now all they can think of is a harsh, unloving God that is making them work for their salvation. And that is not the God of the Bible. So Paul lets Timothy know that he's God our Savior. Another reason it could be because of the emperor worship that was so prominent in the early first century, or in the first century. They would worship Caesar. Caesar himself would call himself a god. The Caesar at that time would have been the ruthless, evil man named Nero. And Nero would have claimed to be both God and Savior. Paul confronting paganism right on, saying, God is our Savior, not Nero. So back in verse 1, back to verse 1, Paul says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the command of God our Savior. And in the very same sentence, he says, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Now I think in hearing this, as people read the Scriptures, some might be tempted to think, why does he say God and then Jesus? It seems like he's saying that Jesus might be less than God. But nothing could be further from the truth. Let me explain this for a minute. The fact that he uses the name of Christ in the very same sentence as God, he is equating Christ with God. It's actually Paul saying, no, Christ, he is one with the Father. When the Father saves, Christ saves. God is our Savior, but Christ is our hope. There is no distinctions. He's not separating the two. He's saying the work that God does, Christ does also. If you recall, this is the very reason that the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus Christ. When he claimed God as his own father, they said that we want to stone you because you make yourself equal with God. Paul, when he puts Jesus in the exact same sentence, with not even thinking about it, he makes the Son equal with the Father. And I want you to think of how big a deal this is for a Jew to do this. The Apostle Paul, remember, he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. They were extremely monotheistic. That is, that they believed in one God. So much so, they read the Old Testament. Remember, God is a jealous God. The first two commandments are about having no other gods. He would not put up with anybody worshiping any false gods. And the Jews knew it, and they were zealous about it. And when they talked about God, they would put nobody else in the same plane. Nobody. And so the, for the Apostle Paul, who is a man zealous for sound doctrine, for him to put Christ Jesus in the exact same sentence with God, without any explanation, is telling us all that he sees God and Christ as completely one. And as Jesus said, the Father and I, are one. So in this verse, we see that the Father and Son are working together in our salvation. And Paul says clearly, he says, Christ is our hope. The Christian hope. I want you to hear this this morning. 
And we've had a long service so far, but this is the main point. Christ Jesus is our hope. So hear me now as I talk about our hope in Jesus Christ. The Christian hope has always been Jesus Christ. It's always been our only hope in life and death is Him in His work. It's not the hope of the world. It's not some whim. It's not some gut feeling. It's not superstition. It's not something we wish. It's not something like your kids say, oh, I hope I get this for my birthday. No, our hope is certain. It is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our very faith is built on the certainty of our hope in Christ. And I ask you this morning, what could you be more certain of? The God of all the universe, the true and living God, He says that we're forgiven based on the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Could we be any more certain of our hope in Christ? God says that we're saved from our sin, that it's cast as far as the east is from the west. That He's accepted the sufficient sacrifice of His Son. That bled and died in our place. Could there be anything that we are more certain of that when we get to heaven, when we stand before the Holy God, that He will forgive us based on the perfect work of His Son? Christ is our only and true certain hope. And as we've talked about His blood of the new covenant, every single promise of God we can stand firm on, we can believe Him, we can take Him to the bank. If God said it, that finishes it. It will happen because it was stamped approval with the blood of Jesus Christ. It is a certain hope. It's not a shot in the dark. It's not your fingers crossed. It is based on the perfect shed blood of God in the flesh. God incarnate. Our heart, our hope is far from that hope of the world. It is certain. It's based on the knowledge of God's Word. I recently spoke to a homosexual man. He was an atheist. I asked what would happen to him when he died. He said to me that he would be buried and that he would cease to exist at the moment of his death. Well, I knew that to be completely false and that that will be a fearful day for him unless he repents and believes in Christ. When he falls into the hands of the holy God, he will regret the fact that he ever lived and all the times that he rejected Christ throughout his life. But this is his worldview. As an atheist, the one who is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, he's become a fool. And he says, this is his hope. I'm going to live my life and then cease to exist. What hope is there in that? If you think of the Muslim, they work their entire life trying to please this angry God, but at the end they, they cannot say whether or not they will make it to heaven. I hope so. But that's no hope at all. Trusting in your own works, trusting in, in what you've done, trusting in your performance, and really all other religions of the world tell you this. That this is their hope. What they've done. I am so glad that I don't have to wake up every morning and think, man, what have I done to try to earn heaven today? I know that I would never get there. If you were to ask those other religions, if they, you thought they were going to heaven, they would say, I hope so. Why? You might ask. 
They would say, because I'm a good person, trusting in themselves. But we know from Scripture that God alone is good and that no man is good. No, not one. But what's the Christian say? The Christian says, it's not about me. It's not about what I've done. Left to myself, I'm sure I will lose my salvation. I'm sure I will go straight to hell. Left to myself, there's no way God will see anything good in me. Left to myself, I have no hope for salvation. So I don't hope in myself. I don't trust in myself. I don't trust in my own works. I cling to the only one that is my true and perfect hope, Jesus Christ and Him alone. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy. Christ is your hope. He's letting the church there at Ephesus know Christ is your hope. He's letting us know Christ is our hope. In verse 2 he says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Here we hear Paul state that Timothy is his true child in the faith. What does he mean by that? While God is the truly the only one that saves, he uses means for that salvation. He uses messengers on this earth to bring salvation to people. He uses us. He uses those who bear the good news of the gospel. And most believe that Paul is who brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to Timothy. That through him, God converted this man, this young man, to the faith. And not only could Paul say that he was, not only could Paul have been the one to tell Timothy about Jesus Christ, he has also been his mentor, his master, and Timothy, his disciple, the one who gave him wise counsel. He has done what Jesus commanded him to do when he says, teach them all to observe all that I have commanded you. Paul did just that to Timothy. He has taught him all that he knew about Jesus Christ. He discipled him. And he was one of his most trusted disciples, so much so that he says here that he is his child in the faith. And if you read through Scripture, you'll see that Timothy was with Paul so often. I want you to hear these words of Paul. Here is confidence in Timothy when he writes to the Philippians. Philippians 2, verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that, I, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy, proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. Paul is saying right here to the Philippians, you have Timothy. If you have Timothy, I'm going to send you Timothy. It'll be like you have me. This is how close these two men were. This is how well taught Timothy was. But here in Ephesus, Timothy is facing a massive battle on his hands. And, he, and Paul is seeking to encourage him in his fight. He finishes the verse 2 with, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is Paul's typical greeting. He, he says this often in his epistles, but he changes it up a little bit, and I think specifically for the situation that Timothy is in. He says, grace from God. He wishes him unmerited favor. 
Not that we could ever earn it. There's nothing that we could do. God shows his favor on all who he pleases. It's not based on ourselves. It's not based on who we are. It's not based on our works. It's not based on how well Timothy is doing. It's based on what God has done and him alone. And he has saved us purely out of his grace, purely out of his actions towards those who are undeserving. We should always take comfort in the fact that God has chose us, loved us, and simply saved us because that's what he desired to do. Not because we earned it or could ever earn it. It wasn't because of us. God does all things for his glory, and he has desired to redeem a people for himself, for his glory. And it wasn't because he saw something in man that was worth saving. It's actually the exact opposite. Grace means unmerited favor or undeserved favor. And so God looks at the ones who are unworthy, that don't deserve to be saved, that only deserve death and the curse and forever judgment, and he saves them purely by his grace through that perfect son, Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to add mercy. He doesn't normally use mercy in his greetings, but he adds mercy, and I think for a specific reason. Let's talk a minute about what mercy is. Mercy, someone giving relief from suffering. God's mercy is that he sees our misery, he sees our suffering, and he does not leave us there. He has every right to, but purely by his grace, by his mercy, he has been, he has relieved us from that suffering. Remember what scripture says, that we are all sinners, that we are all slaves to sin, that we are all hopeless, unable to save ourselves, unable to be free from the judgment that is to come. Left to ourselves, we will only ever continue to sin, and we will receive the just penalty for it. But God relieves our suffering. He frees us from that slavery to sin. God shows us mercy to us by sending his one and only son, God himself, becoming flesh, taking the penalty on his shoulders, living the perfect life, taking our penalty, dying in our stead. God gives us the opposite of what we deserve and he is merciful to us. Amen. And while he's been merciful to Timothy in salvation, he's been merciful to us in salvation, he's also merciful throughout our lives. Timothy's situation, think about it, it's dire. He needs the mercy of God. He is suffering there in Ephesus because of the opposition that he is experiencing. But Paul reminds him that our God is a God of mercy. He sees our situations. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we are creatures from the dust. And he is merciful to us throughout our lives. He will see us through every single difficult situation. He is always with us. And Timothy was no different. Paul is saying, Timothy, remember, your God is merciful. We need to remember today that while life is hard and it's full of trouble and lots of pressures and lots of different things come at us, God is merciful and he is with us. And he will see us through it. And he will give us relief at times. (laughs) 
So he finishes with peace, and that's where we will also finish. Because of Christ Jesus, we have peace with God. Scripture teaches that we are enemies with God, and that apart from Christ, we will always be enemies with God. But because of that perfect work of Jesus Christ, he has reconciled us to the holy God. And you and I are no different. Timothy is reconciled to God. We are reconciled to God with our faith in Christ. No longer enemies, no longer will he hold our sins against us, no longer are we at war with God, but instead because of Christ, because of our faith in Christ, we have found peace with God. This peace that we have with him leads to a peace in our lives. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. And undoubtedly, Timothy is in great turmoil with the challenges that are ahead of him at Ephesus. But even in that situation, he can have peace because of the peace that he has with God through Christ Jesus. So let's think about this for our own lives. No matter what our circumstances are, no matter how bleak it may be, we rest in Christ. We remember that this life is temporary. That our Lord has overcome the world. That this light momentary affliction that we experience here and now is not worth comparing to the eternal glory that awaits us. And so I ask you this morning, do you know Christ? Is He your only hope? If you know Him, then you have peace with God. And with peace and peace with God, nothing can change that. And so while life will be full of ups and downs, full of struggles, remember, your salvation was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. What do we have to be worried about? We have a perfect eternity with God. And remember what Jesus said to his disciples as he was leaving him. He says, peace I leave you, peace I give you. Not as the world gives you do I give you. Let your hearts not be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Let's rest in that perfect work of Jesus Christ. Let it calm our anxieties. Let the world ask, like, how do they have such peace in those circumstances? And we always say, because this is not our home. We have a future hope in Christ. He is our hope. 